Пуща лубезны совсем не под пару. Ты цветушка кроза родного Кавказа. Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. I plead with all of you listeners out there to take a moment, become a patron. Your money helps us do what we like to do here, which is put some interesting programming together, but more so, more importantly... Uh, it's a good way to help pay for Dasha and uh, Rusana's time working for the podcast. So please take a moment to become a patron. We can always use your support. You can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or to yuranot.org and find that Patreon button and become a monthly patron. Um, so Rusana, for this episode, we before we start, we have a couple of announcements for our listeners. So first we have, um, we kind of jumped on the bandwagon and uh, started a Substack newsletter called The Naughty News. It's going to be monthly. Um, and the reason why I think we came up with this is because we wanted to have a better way to communicate with listeners, to tell you what we're doing, what we're planning, where we're going and what we've done. And we figured, you know, one uh, once a month isn't too heavy for you to get this in your inbox. Uh, we're not going to put any like long diatribes, just an update about what we're doing. Um, and listeners can subscribe to uh, this newsletter at eurasiannot.substack.com. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. We also made this beautiful survey that we are inviting you all to fill out. We would like to know more about you guys uh, and what you think about the show. So please go to urina.org and access the survey. We'll also put a link to the survey in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so this this episode was inspired by the fact that it is the end of Pride Month, and and I usually we usually don't have our shit together enough to actually commemorate <laughs> these things, um, but you know circumstances kind of came together, and we actually have some programming that deals with some of the new research that do it's going on in in um, gay and lesbian transgender studies in uh, the history of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. So, Sean, why don't you tell our listeners a bit of a backstory, like what are what are these three episodes about briefly and perhaps why you chose to interview these specific people? Okay, well, um, there are three short segments about ranging around 15 minutes each. Um, the first one. So every every semester or so, uh, as part of my job at Reese, I have to do faculty spotlights. And the faculty spotlight I did last time was with Misha Peltova. Uh, she works with me in the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center, but she's actually leaving us. Uh, this was her last week, and she's she got a job at a university in North Carolina. Um, and uh, she she does some really fascinating research on Czechoslovakia and specifically on gender, sexuality, and transgender in communist Czechoslovakia, uh, listeners will find out that Czechoslovakia actually had um, gender affirmation surgeries in the 1970s and 80s. So this was a this was really surprising, uh, a find of hers. Um, the other two segments come from, in, in April, 
there was a really fascinating small conference that was organized by Irina Rodugina, who is one of the people who is, who's interviewed in this episode. She put together a, a conference called Queer Under State Socialism, a, Go a Global Perspective. And frankly, I haven't been to an academic conference in a long time. I, I kind of actively not go to them. But I've forgotten that small conferences are actually really nice. And this one was so fascinating to hear about the history of, of, of homosexuality, mostly in, um, in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, and in China, and other communist systems. So I took that opportunity, and I showed up to the, to the, um, the conference with a digital recorder, and I sat down with uh, Irina and also another participant in, in the conference, Kate Davidson, to talk about, do a short interview about their work. So that's basically the three segments that listeners will hear today. That's really cool. Uh, I'm excited. And I also am very surprised that there were gender affirmative uh, uh, surgeries in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And apparently also in Eastern East, East Germany. And um, what was the other place she said? I think Yugoslavia. So it's really, really surprising. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I was, it, so it, I think it's important for listeners to learn this as well. So, so first up, as I said, we have this non-narrated piece uh, with my soon-to-be ex-co-worker, Misha Apeltova. Uh, Misha is starting a new position as an assistant professor of history at Wake Forest University. Uh, her research focuses on gender sexuality and disability in 20th century Central and Eastern Europe. Her manuscript that she's still working on uh, is entitled Embodied Socialism, Gendered Bodies and the Cold War in Czechoslovakia, 1965 to 1989. And she's also working, co-authoring a project with Roy Kimmy uh, that examines the recent rise of anti-gender and anti-LGBTQ mobilization across the globe. So I'm sure they'll have, a, unfortunately, they'll have a lot of material to deal with. <laughs> I came across a box of petitions uh, for sex change in a local archive when I was there just, just to see what, what, the, what the archive has. And, uh, and an archivist gave me this box and I just, my jaw dropped. My name is Misha Apeltova and I am a historian of Central Europe. And, and specifically, I specialize on uh, gender, sexuality, and the body in the modern period. I am also a climber, love hiking, I'm a loving dog mama, <laughs> and I used to be an advocate uh, for gender equality and social justice uh, more broadly. So, you know, um, this is just to say that history doesn't, and being a historian doesn't define me fully. So I, th I think I'll, I'll, I'll back up just a tiny little bit. Forum 50% was just one of the advocacy organizations I worked for before I came to the U.S. and started graduate school. Forum 50% is an organization, uh, still exists, still works quite well, that tries to bring themes of gender equality and a higher women's representation into politics in the Czech Republic. So for example, I worked at an editor in a really in interesting and exciting 
experimental press agency uh, for about two years, which really programmatically tried to bring diversity and human rights and gender equality and, and race, racial justice, etc. So these themes into Czech media. It was really exciting work. And, you know, it shaped me in many ways um, and shaped my approach to graduate school as well in the way that I always knew that while I was intellectually curious and I wanted to dive deeper into Czechoslovak and Central European history, I always knew that there was this possibility of me returning back to the nonprofit sector or having another career, right, in an international organization or, or someplace, uh, someplace else. There are several reasons representation of women in politics dropped quite a lot. One of them is the lack of quota. At least in the Czech Republic and in many countries in Eastern Europe, the communist parties had actually quota for representation of women, both in local and national politics, whether they were able and whether they were supported in bringing up themes that were pertinent to gender equality or women's sort of lives in politics is a whole other question. But women's representation was actually guaranteed. Then in many countries around Eastern Europe, the collapse of communism brings about gender conservative ideology. And in Poland, for example, women are actively encouraged to stay at home. There is sort of this uh, mentality of Communism brought about a very artificial engagement of women in public life and women in work and, and women's roles are in, in the domestic sphere. Now research has shown that these arguments already started in the, in the late socialist period. So this is not entirely new, but it accelerates in the post-socialist period. Another sort of big reason is really male networks that are existing already in the late socialist period, but are continuing into the post-socialist period, male networks of economic and political privilege and their access to power. And women are simply not part and are actively uh, prevented from being part of these networks. So it is really difficult uh, for women uh, in the 1990s and in the 2000s to really get into politics uh, sort of on a scale that we could call a parity representation. And this continues. There is still an argument that politicians across the board will often use. Women just don't want to be in politics. So the rebuilding of women's uh, political participation, both on the local level and, and national level, has been quite uh, gradual and on, on the national level, very slow. When I was thinking about my uh, dissertation research, I thought that, uh, or the topic that really interested me at the time, was labor migration uh, from Vietnam to Czechoslovakia and to Central Europe more broadly in the 1970s and 80s. But then I realized, maybe in part because of my advocacy work, that I actually wanted to write a dissertation on Czechoslovakia and about gender. And so I started developing a project on gender sexuality and the body in uh, late socialist Czechoslovakia. I was fascinated, I still am fascinated, by the, the shift in the socialist project over the course of the 1960s that produces the highly transnational and very intriguing culture of late socialism. 
So I think what is really interesting is that there is still this view that the communist project was a top-down project, that the communist party sort of uh, shaped the way in which the population lived and didn't leave space for their agency. But I think we still do not have a very good understanding of how exactly the population exercised its agency. Because there is way more of it uh, than we had thought and that that we still have a good uh, sense of. And my project, I think, was interesting to me in part because the population and people, whether men or women, whether transgender or pregnant women or, or, or conscripts, right, they all, in smaller or bigger ways, sort of shaped their bodies and shaped the ways in which they lived their lives and, and, and shaped the socialist project as well. Over the course of the 1960s, the countries open up to the West uh, a little bit. And in some countries, this closes down in the 70s. But there, there are more Western influences. And my question, I guess, for the, for the project was, what, what does it do to gender? This sort of introduction of consumerism, this opening up to Western influences, the uh, sort of reconceptualization of some of the basic tenets of socialism, the fact that uh, communist parties throughout the bloc no longer sort of base their decision making in ideological purity, but in some way sort of turn to experts, then experts become part of the socialist governance. And uh, I knew from literature that was written that late socialism sort of brings back these biological ideas about gender. Women are biologically predisposed to doing something. Men are biologically predisposed to doing other things. And particularly for women, this means motherhood and maternity. And uh, there is a strong drive towards and, and strong sort of support for pronatalism. And so I was curious and I was interested in how that happens. Who are the driving forces? Who are the actors who are driving this change? And what else besides uh, maternalism and pronatalist politics is part of this uh, sort of, I guess we could call it, and I call it very tentatively, this sort of conservative turn. So to give an example, over the course of the 1960s, there is a huge influx of miniskirts and, and sort of twiggy images, etc. And women latch onto this and there is a huge explosion of beauty pageants in Czechoslovakia over the, over the course of maybe five years. And women do not just do this because it's Western influences and women would want to mimic the West. Not at all. Although that might be a part of it as well. But what I found most fascinating and intriguing is that women often say, we're doing it because we can finally express our femininity. We're part of the beauty pageant contest here because I can finally do a catwalk in a swimsuit. And so I think that there is a way in which the population is driving in some ways, and in this case, women specifically, this turn towards more traditional ideas of femininity as a contrast to the previous Stalinist period. And at the same time, rather than the Communist Party, it is experts 
mostly medical experts who are coming in and are saying, well, women have always used makeup, so the socialist regime should allow them to adorn themselves and use makeup and use jewelry and be aesthetically pleasing creatures because that's what women have always been. And they're basically taking arguments and placing them in sort of the natural desires of, of uh, men and women. Men want to be muscular, women want to be pretty. Both the population and the experts uh, shape gendered ideas and, and the way in which people look at their bodies and shape their bodies in late socialism. So the two really surprising moments was very early on, I went to the National Medical Library in Prague. And one of the first things that popped out was breast reconstructions, aesthetic reconstructions of breasts. And digging deeper, I found that there was a thriving culture of aesthetic surgeries, all sorts of facelifts and breast reconstructions and uh, nose jobs. It actually starts at the Institute of Cosmetics. I don't remember the exact date. But there is also a specialized spa for women in the Czech Republic. And that spa has its own doctor who, who does about, I don't know, 300, 400 breast reconstruction surgeries over the course of a few years at the turn of the 1960s and, and, and the 70s. And from there, it sort of establishes itself and continues throughout the late socialist period. There is this information that I got from one of the surgeons that, who is still alive that apparently there was this list of uh, professions where aesthetics, bodily aesthetics, was part of the job. TV anchors, politicians who went abroad and on international trips, scientists, allegedly, because aesthetics was part of the job, they could get a procedure covered by health insurance. The rest of the country uh, had to pay for these services. I was intrigued by that list. I never found it, uh, but I, I had it confirmed by multiple people. The second thing that surprised me were then called sex reassignment or sex change surgeries. I came across a box of petitions for sex change in a local archive. There weren't many of these petitions, maybe 20, 30 altogether. But they were so significant enough that I decided to write a chapter about them. So one of the things I think we have to remember is that socialist countries were quite early on with decriminalizing homosexuality. Just, just the context for sexologists and the political establishment to deal with non-heterosexuals and non-conforming individuals is already there. It's not like homosexuality was welcome or tolerated. I mean, there is rampant homophobia across the block, of course. But scholars in the past few years have actually found really surprising spaces of openness towards homosexuality, including in Czechoslovakia sexology offices. So sexologists came into contact with individuals who most likely were referred to them from psychiatry offices suicide attempts, depressions, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and sexologists were trying to find treatment or at least a way to help these individuals in the sexological discourse. 
I often came across phrases such as, we need to help these desperate individuals along those lines. So it seems to be that there is a genuine effort to really somehow help who they called patients. And I think this is, uh, and, I, and this, is, this is pure speculation because they never really explicitly state this, the way in which sexologists understand transsexuality is in a very heteronormative way, in the sense that they think that a transsexual is the person with a soul in the wrong body. They insist that in order to transition, a person needs to completely and absolutely and perfectly embody and perform the other gender. And so I think this is their way of thinking that if a male to female or female to male transsexual conforms to the gendered performance, they will be indistinguishable from what they think biological femininity and biological masculinity is like. And the fact that there are gender affirming procedures in socialist Czechoslovakia. By the way, they're also in Poland. In, I think, 1988 or 1989, there was the, the first, or at least the one, the first one that we know of in written form in, in former Yugoslavia. And I actually haven't found uh, much uh, data on East Germany, but I know that gender confirmation procedures did happen in East Germany as well, because Czechoslovak sexologists n mention it. But I, I want to say that despite the fact that there are these procedures and that sexologists do have a mechanism to allow and help individuals change officially their bodies and change their sex in official documentation, does not make these countries less homophobic, less conservative. It just complicates, I guess, the image of conservatism and homophobia, but there are strong and many anecdotes of transsexuals being discriminated against, being thrown out of their families, being thrown out of a job after job after a job. So so this is not to say that a life as a trans person in a socialist country was easy. Not at all. Next up is a short interview with Irina Raldugina. Irina Raldugina is a UCIS postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. Irina is a historian of early modern and Soviet Russia with a particular interest in social history and history of sexuality. In her book manuscript, Vernacular Queer and Shifting Power in Russia, from the late imperial era to the 1940s, she explores homosexual emancipation in Russia before and after the revolution of 1917. Looking at the process from the perspective of non-elite homosexuals, Irina reveals how their same-sex desire was developed, conceptualized, and expressed after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, my name is Irina Raldugina. I'm originally from Moscow. I received my doctoral degree at the University of Oxford, and currently I'm a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of History. And what do you work on? Uh, I'm working on a book, book project, project sorry, dedicated to queer emancipation in early Soviet Russia, previously ignored and hidden from public's attention. 
And what got you interested in this topic? I guess uh, my own identity and the route to acceptance probably of my own identity. Uh, so I don't know, I, I think that I'm a very happy historian who who is able to combine personal and political, so to say, you know. Uh, so for me, uh, I'm working on a history of my own people, you know, in a way. So for me, it's a, it's a huge source of self-emancipation. Uh, and not only for me, for, for, for my friends, as well and for for people from queer community in Russia so yeah it's kind of it's a very enjoyable process uh, to work on a history of uh, the queer because it's not only for you it's about other people as well and about the history of social group mm-hmm. and, and do you, when you do this work when you say read these letters and materials do you relate to them do you see yourself in them do they do they express similar concerns that you find for your own identity? Uh, absolutely. I do remember how I sent one of the letters to a colleague of mine, actually, Anna Mazanik. It was many years ago. I just revealed the letter and I and I felt that I would like to share this material with someone. And uh, I mean, she, she she's married uh, with, with, with a couple of children, so she's a happily heterosexual person. And I do remember that I sent her the letter, Nika's letter, actually. And two days later, she told me, Ira, uh, I have never read nothing like that. I mean, I'm amazed. Uh, and I was like, if Anya is amazed, then probably queer people would be, you know, even more amazed to see this kind of source. So despite the fact that this letter was written uh, like in the 1920s, it still reverberates, it still resonates. So I think, yeah, all those letters, they sound very modern. I mean, the problems are basically the same. I mean, fight for the recognition, fight for the rights, etc. at least in Russia, right? So yeah, I think that the, the letters... Uh, the letters are quite uh, interesting, given now, century later. Mm-hmm. What what surprised you? Like, is there a source that you've encountered that just surprised you that you didn't expect? Ah, too many of them, <laughs> but I think that uh, Nika's letter and the history behind this letter. Uh, when I found this letter, it was an anonymous letter, right? Only two. Uh, two letters, NP, this was the sign uh, below this letter. So uh, when I read it, I was like, it cannot be true because this letter looks like, uh, I don't know, Harry Milk letter or, I don't know, or uh, some kind of uh, LGBT activist from the 1970s from the States, for example, right? So I did not expect to reveal the identity behind this letter. And when I did it, I, I think that, again, I think that's the most exciting moment in, in my, not only scholarly life, but generally in my life, when I realized that this person was real. Uh, and he actually, he was not the only one, right? So I have other uh, voices. And, uh, and I think that all these voices combined, it's a choir of queer people from the uh, 1920s. And yeah, I, I think that all these all these texts they are amazing and you know I, I think that I still have this uh, feeling of a surprise when even uh, since you know years have passed since I found these letters but I still have this feeling of happiness when I read this material excuse me and what what have you what is how has your thinking about your subject changed 
from when you started doing the research or you first read about it, you know, maybe reading like Dan Healy's book, which you mentioned, and, and now? Well, I mean, again, first of all, there was no concept of queer emancipation in early, in early Soviet Russia before I started uh, working on this topic, right? Uh, Dan is an amazing scholar and he did a great job, right? He showed us that homosexuality, sexuality, homosexuality in particular, was the issue in late imperial Russia and in early Soviet Russia. And what I tried to do is to look at other side of the discourse, so to say, to see how did people and possibly homosexual people react to uh, to the proliferation of these discourses uh, and uh, yeah i think that that's the main uh, that's the main point of my research and again i think that i mentioned during the conference a uh, few scholars for example lori asic right who asserts that homosexual homosexuality is an identity did not exist before the collapse of the Soviet Union and you know it's still very common opinion that you know gays and lesbians and trans people uh, they became visible they became so to say real only after the collapse of the Soviet Union you know but it actually in through my research I show that it's not true and early Soviet queer emancipation w- was years before the so-called, you know, liberal gay emancipation in the States. So I think that's the uh, the gist of my research, probably. Yeah. And, and what do you want, say, people, whether they're queer, you know, non-queer, what do you want them to take from your, your work? What do you want them to learn? Oh, it's a tough question. I don't know. I... I don't want to teach you. Uh, I think that the sources and my analysis, uh, well, actually. But you said, but you said that you, this is. I mean, you, it's important for you and your identity. Yeah. But you also said that it's important for other for people, queer people. For other pe- queer people. Yeah. Uh, I mean. I think that the sources are so powerful that even my poor analysis, you know, uh, can be uh, not that important. I mean, the sources are powerful. We can hear the voices of real people and they, uh, they are very persuasive. So basically, I think that I would like to show people the proliferation of voices. Uh, of queer voices from the 1920s and I hope that some of these voices are all together they can serve as an inspiration for for current generation of uh, queer people in Russia right You're trying to and, uncover and the silence absolutely and when Putin and uh, other people from the government uh, opinion makers uh, assert that uh, homosexuality, you know, and queer in general, it's something untraditional. I would like to say, no, actually, we were one of the uh, very first, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the most important thing. So I don't think that it's just a historical research. For me, it's a political issue, absolutely. So I do not separate it. You know, it's a purely scholarly topic. This is a political matter. My research is uh, political per se, uh, because it shows that queer people uh, have always been there. And so, yeah. Yeah, kind of like the old slogan from the 70s we're in the 80s, we're, we're queer, we're here, get used to it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I think that that's the most important thing about my research. Well, thank you, Yura. Is thank there you. anything else you'd like to say Oof. about your work? Yeah, about probab- your- yeah probably. So the, uh, the book project is in the pipeline, and hopefully someday I will be a guest speaker <laughs> <laughs> here with you again. So, yeah, thank you Without so much. Without a doubt, you will. <laughs> Thanks. There's no question. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, here's an interview with Kate Davidson. 
Kate Davidson is a lecturer in the history of sexuality at the University of Edinburgh in the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology. She's completing a book titled Aversion Therapy, Sex, Psychiatry, and the Cold War, which is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press. Uh, my name is Kate Davison. I'm the lecturer in the history of sexuality at the University of Edinburgh. I come from Melbourne originally. Um, yeah. And what do you work on? I work on, my primary subject area is the history of homosexual aversion therapy. Uh, every single word in that phrase, homosexual aversion therapy, needs to be questioned and critiqued. Um, homosexual aversion therapy, so-called, um, is, is kind of, it's the sort of the glue that kind of uh, brings all of my research interests together. Um, I... My research is focused on the Cold War period, so the 1950s, 60s and 70s, and then the eventual emergence of the um, social movements for gay rights, uh, which ultimately overturned the medical model, or so we thought. <laughs> Recent developments have shown that it's not quite dead. Yeah, what, what do you think about this, the fact, because I didn't know that there was a longer history to aversion therapy, and it, it kind of tapered off, it seems, but now it's seemed to come back. How, looking at the work you do in the past and now this thing is back like mm -hmm. what do you how do you make sense of it i think the my research focuses on aversion therapy as it was defined as a sort of a sub branch of behavior therapy um, behavior therapy kind of took shape in the the middle centuries of the 20 the, the middle decades rather of the 20th century um, there were some initial experiments conducted in the 1920s and 30s, but it didn't really take off until the 1950s and 60s. Um, and 1960s could be thought of as the, the golden age of aversion therapy. What people refer to today as conversion therapy, which is a different word, conversion therapies, again, so-called, um, are more broadly defined as uh, people use this kind of very long and awkward acronym, which is um, not very easy to say, but it's sexual orientation and gender identity change or suppression efforts, I think is the, you know. <laughs> um, and these, this is kind of like an umbrella term to describe any attempt at all to try to externally, as a third person, try to change a person's gender identity or sexual orientation uh, in a way that does not suit them. Um, so this kind of could be anything from extreme forms like exorcisms where you have people writhing on the floor and people standing over them, yelling at them, not yelling at them, but yelling at the so-called demon inside to come out. Or it could extend to for example, with uh, young trans people, um, withholding or denying gender-affirming care from them um, has been thought of as a kind of conversion therapy as well. So, I mean, it kind of covers a whole range of things. My research specialisation is on um, a really kind of specific and very officially recognised and sanctioned and totally legitimate, so-called, uh, form of psychological treatment or psychiatric treatment um, that was really about trying to... Uh, so it arose in contradistinction, if you like, to psychoanalytic versions of therapy, which involve having someone sit on a couch for 300 hours usually. It has to be 300 hours. You have to go three times a week for an hour um, for several years. And what psychoanalysts does is try to kind of deconstruct your personality to then try and rebuild it. 
what aversion therapy was doing was, okay, we're not really interested in going back to your childhood and finding the moment of psychosexual arrest when you began to, you know, hating your, mo- hating your mother. We're just interested in treating the symptom. So it was kind of purported to be a very efficient, economically efficient, very cheap, very practical, empirically demonstrable way of treating um, sexual and gender deviations that really just focused on uh, trying to create a negative association between the thing that the patient was doing and the way that society thinks that they should, uh, you know, the thing that the patient was doing and um, a certain kind of stimulation. So to try and make them have a kind of almost subconscious negative reaction to the desire to do something undesirable. And how did you get interested in this? What, like, what drew you to it? So I originally started researching um, attitudes towards homosexuality on either side of the Berlin Wall, uh, particularly with reference to security and intelligence agencies. So I was very interested in, you know, the Cambridge Five story um, of homosexual spies, but I was also interested in what was going on on the other side of the Berlin Wall. So I knew knew enough to know that this was um, probably a much more complicated story. and so I kind of I started looking for uh, German is the language that I um, am most proficient in other than English. So I started looking for records of um, intelligence and state security um, attitudes towards homosexuality and whether there was any truth in the claims by Western security agencies in the 50s and 60s that the communists were recruiting whole troops of, you know, gay Romeos um, and uh, homosexual men to kind of seduce Western diplomats. Uh, This was a kind of a belief that was put about by uh, Western security agencies, particularly MI5 um, and the CIA and especially the Canadians. Uh, The Canadian RCMP was very, very vocal about, you know, spreading this rumour. And so I kind of think, what is there any truth to this, you know? Um, so that's kind of what led me to start investigating that. But then when I stumbled across archival difficulties, I also had the question in my mind, well, what kind of medical knowledges were these various security agencies using? What were they basing their ideas on? Were they consulting psychiatrists? Were they? And the, the Canadians actually did hire a psychiatrist. Gary Kinsman has written about this in his book, um, uh, the, the, war on, the Canadian War on Queers. Uh, where they actually hired a psychiatrist to come in and kind of advise them on on how to spot one, how to how to detect homosexuals so that they could know. But I was very interested in what kind of medical knowledges they were using. So which books were they reading? You know, were they reading psychoanalytic books about homosexuality? Were they reading, you know, medical diagnostic manuals? Um, and so then I started looking into the medical field. And that's when I stumbled upon this Australian psychiatrist called Neil McConaughey, who considered himself to be a communist sympathiser um, and was very, very interested. Was, he was not interested in Freudian psychoanalysis. He was very, very interested in Pavlovian behavioural techniques. And he was a prolific aversion therapist. But I also knew that he had sought out contact with people in the Eastern Bloc so this was very interesting to me. So I kind of started, you know, doing this transnational study of aversion therapy and the exchange of um, medical knowledges across the world uh, in during the Cold War. Is, is there a source or throughout your research something that just like 
was gold for you or changed the way you thought or even confirmed something you were suspicious of, like a source that sticks with you? Yeah, Neil McConaughey's personal papers. <laughs> so this was one of those eureka moments for a historian. Uh, someone had drawn my attention to a website where you know, they knew that I was researching Neil McConaughey. I was looking into his published papers. I was talking to people who might have known him. And someone drew my attention to a website. And the website was, uh, you know, 12 years old. I don't even know why it was still accessible. Um, but I went on there and it was an attempt by what appeared to be a family member of his to publish his final man- book manuscript. Um, it was an unsuccessful attempt, but there was an email address listed on the website. And I thought, oh, may as well just send off an email and see what happens really not expecting anything so I sent off the email and said hello I'm a graduate student researching your father Um, uh, do you have any information that might be interesting for me nothing happened nothing happened and then three months later I got an email in my inbox saying oh hello Um, my sister forwarded me an email from you Um, you might like to know that I have 16 boxes of my father's papers in my garage and uh, yeah, you're welcome to come and have a look. Um, so of course, she invited me to her home. I went and stayed there for a week and I opened the first box and she said there was only one other person who had ever looked at these files. Like basically she had packed them up when her father died and they'd been sitting there ever since. There was only one other you know, fellow psychiatrist who'd come and looked for something specific you know, in the boxes. Not a historian, certainly. And I opened the first box and the first thing I pulled out was the um, machine used to issue electric shocks to fingers. Uh, and I just thought, oh, wow. And in these boxes, there were, you know, Neil McConaughey was the guy who was giving his paper at the American Psychiatric Association's conference in May 1970 in San Francisco when gay activists following the Stonewall Uprising decided to interrupt proceedings. So this was the interruption that people know most about is in 1972 and 1973, but actually in 1970 they had already had an intervention. He was the one that was delivering his paper. There were draft copies of the paper that he had delivered, reflections. He had also kept a folder of newspaper clippings of the disruptions. Um, People sent him kind of reflections. He got letters from colleagues across the world saying, oh, we heard about what happened in San Francisco. Um, So, I mean, these boxes, these 16 boxes of his personal archive, just really kind of open up a world of, it's just this, amazing illustration of not only the professional global professional networks that he developed but also he has all his files you know people's kind of Kinsey scores are listed in his log books you know he has appointment books that he kept of all his patients um, which obviously include names um, you know so it's very sensitive material but it really was just a I couldn't believe my eyes when I when I when I opened that first first box and, and what do you want people to take from your work, from your what you're finding and your, your scholarship? So there are a few things. One thing is that I want people to understand that... So there was a slogan um, in the early gay movement, which was psychiatry is the enemy. So for a whole range of historical reasons, I understand why that was a slogan that was adopted by the gay movement in the US. It wasn't necessarily a slogan that was adopted in other places, but... The history of the US gay movement sort of almost sort of filters out and sort of gets taken on or assumed to be the global history of the gay movement. And 
I think that figures like Neil McConaughey and some of the other psychiatrists that I look at paint a much more complicated picture of people who, you know, Neil McConaughey was himself bisexual. He was a Marxist sympathiser. He used to talk to his family about how he was a Kinsey Five. He was well known in the Sydney, around the Sydney left and the gay networks in Sydney as being someone that they would come into contact with, you know, not in a clinical setting, but in other kind of contexts. Um, and he eventually did come to the conclusion that aversion therapy doesn't work um, and, you know, he should abandon it. But he was a very complex kind of conundrum of a figure. And the same is true for a lot of other psychiatrists that I look at who are working on, you know, queer treatments, you know, whether it was aversion therapy or psychoanalysis or, you know, surgical procedures or endocrinological kind of um, hormone therapy. A lot of them were actually far more complicated than, than we might like to think. And I think that those complications are worth paying attention to. Um, not for kind of weird uh, individual psychohistory reasons, but I do think that it's interesting because it kind of it tells us something about the dynamics that existed between the gay community and the psychiatric establishment. Um, secondly, I want people to realise that even though there was this kind of supposedly hermeneutically sealed kind of border between East and West around certain things in the Cold War, that image in some contexts may be true for the later periods of the Cold War. So, you know, the 1980s, for example. Um, but in the early period of the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s, it, it wasn't really the case. There was a lot of global exchange that included Eastern Bloc countries. It also wasn't the case that scientific knowledge about sexuality came from the West and sort of filtered into the East. That is absolutely not the case. In fact, if anything, it's the other way around. Um, so one of the areas that I focus on is Czechoslovakia. And, um, you know, there was a big project done there in the early 1950s to investigate homosexuality, but also extended to other kind of adjacent things such as trans identities and, and um, bisexuality. And a lot of that knowledge was drawing on, you know, global circulations of, of sexological knowledge. It was drawing on historical information from Germany and so on. So I want people to know that that's actually, uh, it, the, the image that they have of this West to East movement is not actually accurate. That was Misha Peltova, Irina Raldugina and Kate Davidson. And I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rosanna Novikova. And the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And I'm going to say that again, and listeners like you. So take a moment, cough up some cash. This podcast is free to listen to. We want to keep it that way. We don't want to have paid advertising. We want to pay, I, we want to pay our graduate student workers a fair and decent wage. So chip in a few bucks every month. It's a small price to pay for what we're doing here to keep it a nonprofit venture. Uh, and please, if you can't afford to cough up some cash, then take a moment and share the, the podcast on social media. Uh, tell your friends about it. Tell everybody you know. Encourage them to chip in if they, you know, have more means and resources than you do. <laughs> and finally, um, we'd also love to know what what you think of the show. So please, you know, drop us a line. Let us know what you think works, what doesn't, what you like, what you hate. Be nice about it. You know, we don't want to develop a complex. 
If you want, go to the survey uh, at yourenot.org and uh, fill, fill it out and let us know a little bit about yourself and give some comments as to what you th- like about the show. So I think that's it for now. Um, until next time, bye. Bye. bye.